Burma, the American volunteer flyers who have been defending Rangoon with outstanding success against the Japanese Air Force shifted to the attack today. They raided a Japanese air base in the Mole Mine region. One American was lost, but that's only the second casualty in seven days of fighting during which the Americans have downed 50 Japanese planes. In Burma, RAF bombers and American fighter planes smashed at the Japanese base at Pan in the Salween River. Allied flyers also shot down between 10 and 22 Japanese planes, attacking the airport at Rangoon without a single loss of their own. And now John Daly reports further news from the Far East, so I return you to New York. American and British flyers have shot down between 27 and 34 enemy planes in the Rangoon area and have destroyed 34 more in air battles over Thailand. At dawn on Wednesday, two AVG planes made surprise attacks on Japanese airfields at Moulmin and south of Moulmin. They set on fire nine Japanese pursuits, four bombers, and two transport planes, a total of 15, and returned safely to their base. This is James L. Stewart. I return you now to Columbia in New York. By March 1st, 1942, the Flying Tigers had destroyed nearly 300 enemy planes. They had lost a total of seven pilots. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And part two of The Flying Tigers, the story of a group of American fighter pilots who battled the Japanese in the skies over Burma and China between 1941 and 1945. Their leader, Claire Chenault, having been fighting there already for over three years by the time American pilots arrived in China. The All-Volunteer Group, or AVG, formed and led by Claire Chenault, earned a reputation for courage and determination that will last forever in the annals of World War II history. I was really surprised to find that there are a number of people who have never heard of the Flying Tigers of World War II and their incredible deeds so it makes this effort even more satisfying to know that we may be uncovering a new piece of history for many listeners. When we think of our strained relationship today with China since the takeover of communism and their contributions to our enemies in North Korea and Vietnam, it's hard to believe that we were once the best of allies and that our American volunteer pilots were considered the saviors of China. But that's the way it was in the early 1940s, a little over 70 years ago. To casual students of history, the fact that World War II actually began in 1937 when Japan invaded China, and that Americans fought in China at all, and that the Chinese people thought of Americans as saviors in those days, must come as a big surprise. Where did all that goodwill go? Answer? Communism took hold in China on October 1, 1949, when Chairman Mao Zedong announced a communist revolution, and Chiang Kai-shek took 600,000 loyalist troops and 2 million Chinese nationalist faithfuls to safety in today's Taiwan. Taiwan has always stayed friendly and open, but Mayo's China showed no remembrance of the friendships that had been built during World War II and would soon send troops to fight us in Korea and in Vietnam. One correction to Part 1. Colonel Ed Rector did not return to the airfield one hour later. It was the next day. He had gotten lost and run out of gas, which forced him to land his plane. He saw people running toward him and for a moment reached for a service weapon until he realized that this crowd was smiling and happy to see him. It was a throng of jubilant Chinese, 
and they'd already seen the fight in the skies and the downing of Japanese bombers and fighters by tiger shark planes, and they wanted to congratulate him. The Chinese people moved fast and saved most downed American pilots. When the Japanese sent a fleet of 20 bombers toward Nanking, and only one returned, the Japanese were shocked. They'd never before met with this kind of resistance. They gathered all their forces and directed them toward Rangoon for an attack that would show everyone in this war who the power was. There was one squadron of flying tigers at Rangoon, the third squadron, nicknamed the Hell's Angels. Rangoon, located near the mouth of the Irrawaddy River, was a bustling city which provided dockage for ships bringing war materials to Chiang Kai-shek and to Chenault. The Japanese knew that once Rangoon fell, they could sweep up the river to Mandalay and Lashio, which would open the way for a ground attack on India. They wanted to bomb Rangoon and destroy the British Mangaladon Airdrome, where the Brits had 30 Brewster Buffalo fighters and 10 bombers. With the Brits out of the way, they could control Rangoon with one division and secure a vital shipping port. But there was one thing they didn't know. Their intelligence wasn't up to date, and they had no knowledge of 14 Curtis P-40s of the AVG and their American pilots, or if they did know, they discounted them. Chenault had instructed Squadron Commander Arvid Olsen to make use of Mingaladon Field and to use separate camouflaged airstrips as well, advising him to spread his planes so that a single surprise attack wouldn't destroy all his planes at once. There was tension between the staid British in Rangoon and the Americans. They considered the American AVG pilots to be loud, boisterous, and rude, as demonstrated when they got in bar fights or when they borrowed Chinese rickshaws and staged wild races down the streets, and you could just picture it with the coolies protesting all the way. The RAF and the Brewster Buffaloes could defend Rangoon just fine, they said, and the Yanks could go home. Just after dawn on December 3, 1941, a Japanese attack squadron of 54 heavy bombers left Bangkok and headed north, destination Rangoon. They were joined by 20 fighter planes at the border of Burma and Thailand, where they turned west toward the Gulf of Martaban and Rangoon. The first wave would destroy Rangoon, the second, Mingaladon Airfield. They didn't expect any trouble. The phone rang in Commander Olsen's tent at Mingaladon at 10.30 a.m., warning him that Japanese planes were on the way. There were 14 planes at Mingaladon and 20 pilots running toward them. The ones to reach last would have to stay behind. It was a wild scramble as planes began to taxi, nearly running over those still trying to reach a plane. Rangoon was being bombed and the docks were on fire. Crowds were pressed into the streets and Japanese fighter pilots were strafing the masses of non-combatants who were screaming and falling. Black smoke began to billow over the Rangoon docks. The second wave of Japanese bombers headed for Mangaladon Airdrome. Their fighter escort? A dozen I-97 Japanese fighter planes. Within minutes, the 14 P-40s and 16 Brewsters closed on that bomber formation of 27 planes, and the bombers tightened up their formation, filling the sky with white tracers. AVG pilot Neil Martin led three other Tigers into a right-angled attack, and his plane was hit badly, spiraling downwards and exploding on impact. 
the first flying tiger to die in combat. AVG pilots Henry Gilbert and Paul Green spotted several bombers that were flying separately and headed for them, hoping for an easy kill. But that was a trap, and half a dozen Jap fighters swarmed on them, hitting Gilbert's plane and downing it, making him the second casualty for the AVG. Meanwhile, Japanese bombers were on fire. Paul Green's plane had been hit at the same time as Gilbert's, and finally Green was able to bail out. In his rush back at the airfield to be first to the planes, he had had no time to don his flight suit, and he was dressed only in shorts and cowboy boots. Typical garb for the AVG back at the field. As he dropped, Japanese fighter planes saw him and started strafing. Green wildly pulled on his chute cord to try to avoid the bullets. After two bouts with fighter planes, Green was hanging limp, and they left him for dead. Flight mechanics who had been watching from the airfield below ran to recover his body when he landed and saw that his chute had been drilled with holes. But Green was alive and unhit. He'd been playing dead most of the way down. Bombs were falling on Mengaladon, one destroying the operations building and one blasting the hangar and wiping out a British ground crew. In a few minutes, the runways were torn up with gaping craters showing. Eight RAF trainers that never made it off the ground were on fire. As the Japanese bombers left, the AVG pursued them out over the Gulf of Martaban until their fuel got so low they had to return, one by one, all except a pilot named Duke Hedman. During training, Duke had been the cautious one, so cautious that they had him figured to be a long shot forever becoming an ace. He had been the last to grab a plane back at the field when the alarm had sounded. But in the air now, with the fog of battle hanging all around him. Duke wasn't done. When he first saw the Jap fighters, he joined the battle in a fury, downed an I-97 mission on his first dive, then taking out a bomber, then after taking out a bomber, Japanese fighters hit him, smashing his canopy. But undaunted, he climbed again and made another dive, taking out two more I-97s, while being hit again, this time in the gas tanks, and even picking off his gun sight but he still wasn't done. As the invaders flew out over the gulf, he flew smack into the middle of their bomber formation and sent another bomber down in flames. Finally, and leaking gas, his plane Swiss cheese with bullet holes, his canopy smashed, he turned for home, and he made it. At the end of the day, the AVG had claimed 15 enemy planes destroyed, the British pilots seven. Search parties later found the remains of 32 Japanese planes around Rangoon, adding an extra 10. The AVG had lost two pilots and planes, and three more planes and one pilot later that day, when three P-40s ferrying new planes crashed into a mountain. More Japanese would be coming, and Olsen was now down to 12 planes and 15 pilots. On Christmas morning, the Japanese on Radio Tokyo were declaring a huge victory with the bombing of Rangoon. They also promised Rangoon another bundle of Christmas presents. At 10.30 a.m., the warning came through. The red ball was raised on the mast, and 12 AVG planes headed for the skies, along with 16 Brewsters. Soon, 71 Jap bombers and 42 Japanese fighters appeared in the skies. The score? 113 Japanese planes, 28 Allied planes. Four to one odds. One ground observer would be quoted later as saying, it was like rowboats attacking the Spanish Armada. The 12 P-40s split into two formations, 
one led by Colonel Parker McMillan and one led by Commander Dupuy. They dived from 20,000 feet and the skies lit up with tracers, flaming bombers and dogfights. McMillan's flight got the first wave of Japanese bombers before it reached Rangoon and dove on them along with R.T. Smith, Charlie Holden and Tom Haywick and they were knocking bombers out of the sky one after the other. McMillan's plane took a hit and he crash landed it wheels up in a rice paddy. Three other AVGs, one of them headmen, were headed for Jap fighters and within a minute headmen had taken out two and was chasing a third. Later when he was asked how many he had downed, he said he'd stopped counting and wasn't going to as he considered it bad luck. He never did offer any totals after that. Six Tigers with Parker Depoy attacked 27 bombers escorted by Zeros and downed some but were distracted by an order in English that came over their radios telling them to pancake immediately, meaning get back to base, which they did. When they began to land, six Jap fighters ambushed them and put two of their planes out of action. Dupuy and the others, realizing it was a trick, returned to the sky and kept fighting until Dupuy had four feet of one wing shot off and had to crash land his P-40. In the end, 10 of the 12 flying tigers that had taken part in the battle over Rangoon returned to the field. Their planes, fuselages, and tails filled with holes and were greeted by wildly enthusiastic mechanics and crew. It had been a great victory. The 16 Brewsters had stopped the first wave before it could bomb Rangoon, but five of their pilots had been lost. Olsen radioed Chenault, and this is what he sent him. Like shooting ducks, without the whole Japanese force out of commission with a full group here. Tokyo Radio that night called the AVG unprincipled bandits, but the Brits' opinion of the American pilots was now totally reversed. It came in on the 23rd and, uh, you know, December. They, uh, uh, and this was, uh, this was the third squad first contact, and they did real well. I can't remember right offhand. How many airplanes they shot down? But then the Japanese didn't come back. The next day they regrouped, and then they said they were going to come in and wipe everybody out. And they came in with a real big force of airplanes, maybe 80 or 90 airplanes. And the guys uh, shot down a whole bunch that day. I think they shot down around 20 some airplanes. And so uh, they didn't come back then. Uh, my squadron and I came down there on New Year's Eve to relieve them. And then, uh, then we had a lot of, a lot of heavy fighting down there for, for a month while I was there. Then the third squad, I mean the first squad, uh, Bob Neal's squadron came down to relieve me. But their story in the skies over Burma was the only bright spot that day in the Allied effort throughout the theater. Hong Kong had fallen. MacArthur's forces were being hemmed in on the Bataan Peninsula, and Chenault's great friend Joseph Alsop doing business for the AVG in Hong Kong, had been captured. His seat on the last plane out of Hong Kong had been taken by the wife of a prominent Chinese banker and her dog. Such are the fortunes of war. On December 30th, Chenault sent 17 P-40s from 2nd Squadron, led by Jack Newkirk, who had been a flyer on the famed carrier Yorktown, to reinforce Rangoon. Newkirk was anxious to get back into action, and on January 3rd, he led Jim Howard, Tex Hill and Bert Christman on a raid to Thailand, where they hoped to surprise the Japanese airbase at Tak, 
about 170 miles from Rangoon. Crispin's plane developed engine trouble and had to turn back. The other three were flying at 10,000 feet over a jungle canopy when they spotted TAC airfield and a row of bombers lined up neatly, and the first thing they thought was that this was too good to be true. And it was, as there were six Type 96 Jap fighters flying unseen above them. As Texel was making his first dive on the parked planes, he saw a stream of bullets hitting Howard's tail, so he pulled up sharply and got behind the Jap fighter's tail. He shot it down, but took fire himself by a second Jap plane. He pulled around and came face to face with this one, knowing he had more firepower and stronger armor to outlast this chicken contest. He forced a burst straight into the 96, and it exploded as he flew over it. Newkirk and Hill had each scored two by the time they returned to the base with no casualties. The following morning, 26 Japanese fighters headed toward Megalodon, and that was the only air battle in which the AVGs had to settle for a draw, losing three planes. They never experienced a net loss. The Japanese pilots must have reported a total rout, however, because they once again turned loose a squadron of planes on Rangoon. But the Tigers and the RAF beat the attack back again. Then the Japanese changed up tactics and began threatening bombing raids over Megalodon every night for five nights. The Allied pilots were staying awake to be ready to fly, and they were dropping Japanese planes, but their spotter crews, mechanics, and pilots were exhausted. When the Japanese again tried another bombing of Rangoon, the AVG planes attacked with the same ferocity they'd showed the previous week. Some 30 Japanese planes were found in Rangoon, and at least as many were thought to be lying at the bottom of the gulf or in the surrounding jungles. The air war was not going well for the Japanese, but their planes kept coming. Two weeks went by, and British intelligence reported that 300 Jap planes would soon be attacking Rangoon. Chenault sent reinforcements, and they were expecting a fight. Finally, on the morning of January 23rd, 1942, 23 I-97 Nakajima fighters approached Megalodon Field. As it turned out, their mission was to get the Allied fighter planes up in the air and engage them until they ran short on fuel, at which time the Japanese would bomb Megalodon into the next century. A flight of British hurricanes had just landed when the alarm sounded and Tex Hill and Frank Lawler ran for their planes. Both pilots were now well-experienced at downing Jap fighters, and they began pounding Japanese planes out of the sky, actually holding off 23 Japanese fighters with just two P-40s for a full 10 minutes. Then five RAF fighters joined them, along with three more Tigers, and the remaining Nakajimas fled for safety. The Americans and RAF landed, grabbed a quick lunch, and headed for the oncoming Japanese bombers which had been expecting a free run over the Megalodon base. But the AVG was ready, and Newkirk and nine other Tigers headed up to their ceiling, then dived on the first wave of bombers. It was a turkey shoot. Newkirk shot down his first two, but then had to land his shot up P-40, whereupon he grabbed another. While he was climbing out of his first, he said to the mechanics, who had rushed out to repair his plane, I made another thousand dollars, boys. Got another plane for me? And he found another P-40 and went up to take down another two bombers. Rector and Crispin dived on a second wave, blasting Japanese bombers and their fighter escort out of the sky. 
but at one point Crispin's plane was hit and he had to bail out. As he came down in his parachute, a Japanese pilot strafed him, hitting him square in the forehead, and Crispin died instantly. Now it became a revenge fight. For two days, the air battles continued, and no matter how many planes the RAF and ABG knocked out of the sky, more would come. The Japanese apparently had many hundreds, maybe thousands of planes. The ABG pilots and planes were slowly diminished. The mechanics were exhausted, and to say parts were running low would be generous. Yet they never stopped fighting, and at least 10 Tiger planes were somehow wired together and put in the air every day to fight. Meanwhile, the world had recognized the courage of the RAF and ABG pilots and crews. The sands of history have buried over the details of what was happening in Rangoon, Burma during those desperate months of January and February of 1942, as the Japanese continued their assault on that city, and the beleaguered Allied forces continued to try to land supplies and protect the skies from Japanese bombers. By the middle of February 1942, Singapore had surrendered, and Rangoon was in desperate straits. Criminals, lunatics, and lepers released by the British authorities roamed the streets trying to find food, while looters broke into stores still trying to stay open between Japanese bombing raids. Muggings, knifings, and murders had become commonplace as the Burmese people, long chafing under British rule, began to riot and attack the Brits. Americans trying to get to the docks to pick up supplies sometimes had to shoot their way in and out of the city. By February 19th, the Japanese army had crossed the Salween and were only 75 miles from Rangoon. The British commander in Burma had ordered his troops to fight to the last man. The P-40 squadron leader in Burma, Bob Neal, had only 10 planes that could fly at Mangaladon after 60 days of fighting. Things were desperate as exhausted ground crews and mechanics struggled to keep planes in the air despite the desperate need for parts. You hear about... Uh... The pilots, they have all the uh, notoriety, the fame, and the glory. Uh, we just happen to be there, we happen to be able, but the true success of the AVG rests with the, all the ground personnel that we had. We would have been dead in the water by April of 1942 had it not been for the dedication, uh, the smarts, and uh, the stick to of all of the ground personnel, the mechanics, the prop specialists, the armorers, uh, they kept the AVG going right up until our disbandment on July the 4th, 1942. They did some phenomenal things. We had two airplanes that uh, were in, in water in, in the river, and they retrieved both of them, one of them for spare parts, and the other one they made flyable again because P-40s were worth their weight in gold because there were no replacements. And for spare parts, they made spare parts. And they worked 20 hours a day. And we, we were deploying uh, planes also all over China, all the way to Kunming, or rather to Chongqing, and uh, down to Guilin, and to Hengyang in the, in the Siang Valley. And my crew chief, crewed two airplanes all the time, kept two airplanes flying and, and pre-flighted, and my armorer served uh, three and four type planes. That, they put the, load the guns and do all of that bit. So uh, 
the true success is belongs to the uh, the hard-working ground personnel of the AVG and when I talk I never hesitate to give them credit for uh, really the stalwart performance that they gave and uh, they they had uh, we had after the fighting started we had four or five that quit and went home as we had two or three additional pilots after the fighting started by and large, well, well, the majority, everybody stayed except for those very few that you'd name on one of the hands that uh, threw in a towel and left. On February 23rd, 1942, Japanese fighters appeared over Rangoon, and only nine P-40s and a handful of British Hurricanes were able to rise up to meet them. This was beyond courage. It was madness. But here they literally rose to the occasion. The sky over Rangoon was a raging battlefield. Japanese planes were exploding and diving into the streets, the bay, and the jungle. The Tigers had 13 confirmed victories and three planes knocked out of action, all pilots surviving. The next day, the 24th, 200 Japanese planes appeared, and six Tigers rose up to meet them. The Tigers bagged 18 more fighters. How many bombers they got is unknown. By that time, they were all too tired to count. By the end of it all, six Tigers had landed back at Bengaladon. But the Japanese bombers had done their job. Twenty-five blocks of Rangoon were burning. Animals from the zoo were prowling the streets and tearing the human carcasses. Victims from the Japanese bombings who were lying in the streets. Hospitals overflowed with wounded. Crowds of half-crazed Burmese fought police who were trying to restore order. While the wharves oil dumps, and ships in the harbor burned. We hear a lot about the atomic bombs that finally brought Japan to the table to surrender, but we never hear what their bombs did to innocents in China and Burma for years. In Rangoon, the stench of burning bodies and buildings filled the air as Rangoon died a violent death. On February 28, Rangoon finally fell to the Japanese, and the AVG abandoned the airbase at Bengaladon moving northward into China to Magwei, 250 miles north of Rangoon. They had done everything humanly possible they could do. Japanese columns had been strafed on the ground, and hundreds of Japanese fighter planes lay smoking in pieces in the jungles surrounding the city of Rangoon. Right about this time, General Stilwell took over command of U.S. forces in China, receiving two armies from Chiang Kai-shek and placing Chenault under his authority, which Chenault at first agreed to. The Flying Tigers had a few weeks to get their planes back in fighting shape and rest. On March 19th, Bill Reed and Ken Jernstedt, two Tiger pilots, received orders to take a look at Moulmin Field, a Japanese airbase south of Rangoon. And when they arrived and dove below a white cloud cover, they saw 30 Nakajima fighters being gassed up for a mission. So they began strafing, destroying 16 of them on the ground. When the Japanese got in the air, the two AVG pilots took down another 12 Japanese fighters. The Japanese were furious. On March 21st, 27 Japanese bombers and 20 fighters headed for the AVG base at Magway to return the favor. They came in from the west, and the AVG did not have any ground observer units to the west of the base. Their network hadn't been set up. Blenheim bombers, Hurricanes, and P-40s were sitting ducks. Only two P-40s and two Hurricanes got into the air. 
They shot down four, but couldn't stop the onslaught. Magway Airfield was ablaze. They radioed Chenault, who was in bed with bronchitis in Kunming, who responded, Look for another attack tomorrow. The British-operated warning system had not been put in place. The attack came at 8 a.m., and not a single plane made it up to fight. Two men were lost, and most of the aircraft had been destroyed. The Brits packed up and headed for the Bay of Bengal. The AVG fled north by train, truck, and remaining planes to low-wing China, near the Burmese border. Chenault then ordered an attack on Chiang Mai, a Japanese airbase he knew was located in the teak forests of northern Thailand. He had ten planes and asked Newkirk to lead it, and on March 23rd, the mission left Kunming. There wasn't any reason to fear this mission more than any other, but Newkirk, from Scarsdale, New York, had been having some bad premonitions, and he shared them. He also revised his will with the chaplain. Bob Neal's six planes were to attack Chiang Mai, while Newkirk's four planes would hit a satellite base nearby. Neal's planes caught the base off guard and took 20 Japanese fighters out of action, still on the field. His group lost one plane, flown by Bill McGarry, who bailed out and was able to signal that he was okay. Newkirk's group of four found the satellite base was empty and soon found a Japanese truck convoy, which they strafed, but an unlucky bullet caught Newkirk, and his plane crashed with him still at the controls. Back at Loy Wing Base, the AVG men, having lost two planes and one of their best pilots, Newkirk, started to grumble. Parts were still a problem. They felt like they were trying to fight a war alone, and with pop guns against a superior force, which they had been, and exhaustion and depression were taking hold. Five months of almost constant combat was resulting in battle fatigue. And that's when General Stilwell began applying pressure for them to join the Army Air Force and disband the AVG. Chenault polled his men, and nine out of ten said that they would terminate their contracts and return to the States before they would join the Army Air Force. Chenault contacted Madame Chang with this information. She had always been the one he would go to with problems, and she always had the answers. Chenault told a New York Times reporter that conversion into the U.S. Army Air Force would cost them four months' time to make the change. He railed that the Japs would celebrate the disbanding of the AVG and call it a victory, and that would be a bad move all around. But General Bissell quarantined the story, and the newspapers could not print it. That story would take years to come out. By May 15, 1942, the Japanese Red Dragon Armor Division was approaching the west bank of the Salween River. This was the last barrier between the Japanese and Kunming China, and if Kunming fell, all of China would fall. Chenault wired Madame Shang and informed her of the situation. Stillwell was walking his men out of China toward India through the wild Burmese jungles. The defenders of China were on the run from the advancing Japanese. The Chinese army was also on the run. Chenault asked for permission to attack the Japanese between Salween and Lungling City. This would involve low-level strafing and bombing, placing his AVG planes low to the ground and making them targets from above and below, a mission which was sure to be deadly. The AVG was now the only thing that could slow the Japanese from seizing China's throat. Madame Shang responded, 
Generalissimo instructs you send all available AVG to attack trucks, boats, between Salween and Lungling City. Tell AVG I appreciate their loyalty and redoubled efforts, especially at this critical juncture. Chenault had just received a new order of P-40 Tomahawks and the new P-40 Kitty Hawks, which could carry bombs. The Kitty Hawks would bomb the armored columns while the Tomahawks flew fighter cover above. A little after dawn, eight AVG pilots took off, with Tex Hill leading the Kitty Hawks, Ed Rector, Frank Lawler, and Tom Jones behind. They carried fragmentation bombs in the wing racks and a detonation bomb in an improvised belly rack. Arvid Olden led the four Tomahawks. And it's fair to say that with these eight pilots and planes, rode the fate of China that day, toward Salween. I got him, but it simultaneously, this all happened in about, actually about a, a minute or so. Well, we'd been making some missions down there, but the Japanese, uh, uh, <coughs> see, when we left, when Burma collapsed, uh, then we got run out of Loy Wing, which is our last deal. And uh, the Japanese just kept driving right towards the Salween, and, uh, and at that time, had, uh, had China, and China would have collapsed if it had crossed it. We were all figuring out how we were going to go out of there on that old Marco Polo route on up to Manchuria and up to that way to get out of there. And we stopped them there and uh, uh, we killed a lot of Japanese. Now, Chinese, you know, they sacrificed an awful lot. They blew that bridge up themselves, the original bridge, and, and uh, they trapped a lot of their own people over there. But they did it because they had to, you know. And, uh, so the Japanese built uh, a pontoon bridge over there, and that's when we went down there and, and, and hit them and uh, blocked the road down there for one thing, and then we really uh, worked on them, killed a lot of people. We knocked off part of that, that road, and uh, of course that Burma Road is cut into the mountain, and uh, if, you, if you hit up here, you knock some some of the stuff down on the roadway, you shovel it off. But if you hit the edge of that road, then they got to do a lot of excavation. So that's what we tried to do, and uh, we blocked them. But one of the bombs must have hit their headquarters because the uh, last uh, flight we made, uh, all the armored cars and everything, they were turned around going the other way. During the next four days, the AVG pilots flew continuous missions into the gorge, effectively neutralizing the Japanese forces. This prevented a Japanese advance on Kunming and Chunking. The Japanese never advanced farther than the west bank of the upper Salween. Claire Chenault later wrote of these critical missions, The American volunteer group had staved off China's collapse on the Salween. After heavy fighting in late March and early April, and way too many dangerous low strafing missions which were ordered to improve the morale of the Chinese infantry, and the death of Newkirk, one of their top aces. The pilots were in low spirits, and only 12 P-40s were still flying, now based at low wing on April 8th, the Japanese having destroyed the small British strip they were using at Magway. Despite the long retreats, their losses, and incessant air combat, the AVG still retained their abilities, but five months of constant combat was wearing on them. Also, General Stilwell was still pressing Chenault to disband the AVG and have his pilots fly for the U.S. Army Air Force, 
but most of the men wanted to keep the AVG as it was. Chennault told a U.S. newsman that the breaking up of the AVG and transferring them to the U.S. Air Force would take months and put them out of action for up to four months. But China was in no position to go four days without the AVG, much less four months. On April 8, 1942, 12 Oscars, which were improved zeros, faster and with higher ceilings, from the 64th Sentai, raided the base. In the ensuing series of dogfights, four KI-43s were downed in exchange for one P-40 destroyed on the ground. Despite being on the defensive thereafter, the AVG continued to harass the JAAF with raids on their Vietnamese bases. With the Burma campaign over, Chenault redeployed his squadrons to provide air protection now for China. The Doolittle Raid, also known as the Tokyo Raid, took place on Saturday, April 18, 1942, and it was an air raid by the United States on the Japanese capital of Tokyo on the mainland and other places on the island of Honshu, it being the first air operation to strike the Japanese home islands. The attack was a huge boost to American morale, it demonstrating that the Japanese mainland was vulnerable to American air attack and serving as retaliation for the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The raid was planned and led by Lieutenant Colonel James Jimmy Doolittle of the United States Army Air Force. The Doolittle raid involved 16 B-25 Mitchell medium bombers launched without fighter escort from the U.S. Navy's aircraft carrier USS Hornet deep in the western Pacific Ocean, each bomber with a crew of five men. The gutsy plan called for them to bomb military targets in Japan and to continue westward with all the gas they had left to land in China, because landing a medium bomber on the Hornet was impossible. Fifteen aircraft reached China, but all had to crash land without fuel, while the 16th landed at Vladivostok in the Soviet Union. Amazingly, 77 of 80 crew members initially survived the mission. Eight airmen were captured by the Japanese Army in China. Three of those were later executed. The B-25 that landed in the Soviet Union was confiscated, with its crew interned for more than a year before being allowed to escape via Soviet-occupied Iran. Fourteen complete crews of five, except for one crewman who was killed in action, returned either to the United States or the American forces. After the raid, the Imperial Japanese Army conducted a massive sweep through the eastern coastal provinces of China in the operation now known as Zijiang Zhangzi Campaign, searching for the surviving American airmen and inflicting retribution on the Chinese who aided them in an effort to prevent this part of China from being used again for an attack on Japan. The raid caused negligible material damage to Japan, but its consequences had major psychological effects. In the United States, as stated, it raised morale. In Japan, it raised doubt about the ability of military leaders to defend the home islands. But the bombing and strafing of civilians also steeled the resolve of many to gain retribution and was exploited for propaganda purposes. It also contributed to Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto's decision to attack Midway Island in the Central Pacific, an attack that turned into a decisive strategic defeat of the Imperial Japanese Navy by the U.S. Navy in the Battle of Midway, which, by the way, is in our archives at 1001 Heroes. It's a two-part special, and it's very informative. The consequences were most severely felt in China, 
where Japanese reprisals cost an estimated quarter of a million lives. The Doolittle Raid had also prompted the Japanese to launch an offensive to seize AVG airbases that could be used for attacks on the Japanese homeland. By June 1, 1942, personnel that would form the nucleus of the new U.S. Army Air Force 23rd Fighter Group, which was the AVG's replacement, were beginning to trickle into the theater. Some of the last missions the AVG flew were defending Guilin against raids by Japanese Air Force Nate, Lilies, and two new Kawasaki Ki-45 Toryu Nick heavy fighters. The AVG's last combat was over Heng Yang on the day it was disbanded, July 4, 1942. In this final action, the AVG shot down four Ki-27s with no losses. The AVG lacked many resources. Despite its location in areas with malaria and cholera, it had only, quote, four doctors, three nurses, and a bottle of iodine, end quote. Pilots found the food disgusting, and the slow mail from home and lack of women hurt morale. A squadron had 45 maintenance personnel compared to the normal more than 100, and only one base could perform major repairs. Nevertheless, the AVG was officially credited with 297 enemy aircraft destroyed, including 229 of those in the air. Fourteen AVG pilots were killed in action, captured, or disappeared on combat missions. Two died of wounds sustained in bombing raids, and six were killed in accidents during the Flying Tiger's existence as a combat force. Unofficially, the AVG destroyed over 500 Japanese fighter planes and bombers. The AVG's kill ratio was superior to that of contemporary Allied air groups in Malaya, the Philippines, and elsewhere in the Pacific Theater. The AVG's success is all the more remarkable since they were outnumbered by Japanese fighters in almost all their engagements. The AVG's P-40s were superior to the Japanese Air Force's Ki-27s, but the group's kill ratio against modern Ki-43s was still in its favor. In the book, Flying Tigers, Claire Chenault and his American Volunteers, 1941-1942, Daniel Ford attributes the AVG's success to morale and group esprit de corps. He notes that its pilots were triple volunteers who had volunteered for service with the U.S. military, the AVG, and the brutal fighting in Burma. The result was a corps of experienced and skilled volunteer pilots who wanted to fight. During their service with the Nationalist Chinese Air Force, 33 AVG pilots and three ground crew received the Order of the Cloud and Banner, and many AVG pilots received the Chinese Air Force Medal. Each AVG ace and double ace was awarded the five-star or ten-star wing medal. Two AVG veterans were awarded the Medal of Honor. The first, Greg Pappy Boyenton, who broke his contract with the AVG to fly active duty for the Marines, going on to command a squadron of tough misfits known as the Black Sheep who racked up an impressive record in the Pacific against Japanese planes and ships. A television show called The Black Sheep Squadron aired for a few years in the U.S. in the 70s. The other Medal of Honor recipient was James H. Howard, U.S. Army Air Force, who flew 51 missions with the Flying Tigers, was promoted to captain, and moved to the European theater afterwards. In 1943, he was promoted to the rank of Major and given command of the 356th Fighter Squadron in the 354th Fighter Group, based in the United Kingdom. 
On January 11, 1944, Howard flew his P-51 unaccompanied into some 30 Luftwaffe fighters that were attacking a formation of American B-17s over Aschersleben, Germany. One account read like this. For more than half an hour, Howard defended the heavy bombers of the 401st Bomb Group against a swarm of Luftwaffe fighters, repeatedly attacking the enemy and shooting down as many as six. Even after Howard's P-51 ran out of ammunition, he continued to dive on enemy airplanes. The leader of the bomber formation later reported, For sheer determination and guts, it was the greatest exhibition I've ever seen. It was a case of one lone American against what seemed to be the entire Luftwaffe. He was all over the wing, across and around it. They can't give that boy a big enough award. Nineteen pilots were credited by the AVG with five or more air-to-air victories. Robert Neal had the most, with 13. The success of the AVG led to negotiations in spring of 1942 to induct it into the U.S. Army Air Force. Chenault was reinstated as a colonel and immediately promoted to Brigadier General, commanding U.S. Army Air Units in China, initially designated China Air Task Force and later the 14th Air Force, while continuing to command the AVG by virtue of his position in the Chinese Air Force. One of the pilots drawn to the success of the AVG was Robert Lee Scott Jr., who was flying supplies into Kunming over the hump from India. He convinced Chenault to loan him a P-40, which he flew to protect the supply route. His aggressiveness led to Chenault's recruiting him as commander of the 23rd Fighter Group. Scott brought recognition to his exploits and those of the Flying Tigers with his 1943 best-selling autobiography, God is My Co-Pilot that was then made by Warner Brothers into a popular film in 1945. Chenault's newly formed Chinese Air Task Force, or CATF, now a part of the U.S. Army Air Force, continued to wage war against the attacking Japanese over China and Burma. The fighting was constant and desperate, with the Japanese losing planes at about a 10 to 1 ratio. At this point, we'll include some personal stories and anecdotes, just to prove that life still exists between bombing and fighter missions, and the fog of war. One story I like, Chenault liked to hunt geese when he could, and he would take his dog, a dachshund named Joe, with him to retrieve the goose after he'd downed it. One day, outside of Kunming, Chenault had winged a large goose, and Joe dove into the water for it. And yes, I know dachshunds aren't known as water dogs, but this one was unnatural. Joe swam out to it and grabbed it, but the goose was still full of life and started beating Joe over the head with his wing. Joe wouldn't release his grip, and the goose was drowning him, the two making a furious disturbance out on the pond. When it looked like Joe was going under, Chenault jumped in and waded out, grabbing Joe and the goose and pulling them in. Chenault told a friend, Up to that day, Joe liked me. After that day, that dog loved me. He would never leave my side. And Chenault's men were the same. By September of 1942, they were raiding Japanese bases, knocking zeros out of the sky, and sinking ships at the Great Wampoa Docks at Canton and Hong Kong. In six days on the Gulf of Tonkin, Chenault's pilots had destroyed 71 enemy planes, three ships, and uncountable supplies intended for the Japanese Army. And not a single U.S. pilot or plane was lost. Generals Stilwell and Arnold were constantly squeezing supplies, especially gas and parts, 
away from Chenault, leaving his men and planes grounded, and Chenault's war was as much with them to get supplies as it was in the air. That's the way it is in war. You end up fighting against yourselves, against stubborn generals whose noses get out of joint, against politicians who have something to gain by getting in your way, and against those who just don't like the way you do things, even if you're wildly successful. Ask Billy Mitchell, or George Washington, or ask George Patton. All of them had to rise above a steamload of crap to get things done and succeeded through sheer determination and in knowing that they were right. When Colonel Scott went to the war room in Washington to ask for more planes, telling them the P-40 was now obsolete and that they needed faster, more maneuverable planes to fight the Japanese, one of the generals in the room said, Scott, how is it that these obsolete planes you talk about are winning in the air with a 14 to 1 ratio? How do you explain the P-40's record against the Zeros? Scott answered one word. Chenault. Chenault made the difference, sir. In China, Chenault had to answer to General Stilwell, known as Vinegar Joe for his acid tongue, and General Clayton Bissell, who had never been on Chenault's side and didn't believe air combat or air superiority was important. It was boots on the ground that would make the difference, in his opinion. Chenault was spitting into the wind trying to get either of them to budge on giving him supplies, and he had sent respected men like Scott to Washington to fight the good fight and hopefully get Roosevelt to agree to a plan that would give Chenault a force to fight with. Despite all the bickering, Chenault's 14th Air Force Group had held its own against the Japanese in 1943 and 44, sinking freighters, merchant ships, 57,000 tons of shipping, downing Japanese fighter planes by the hundreds, and bottling up the Yangtze River and the South China Sea, preventing Japanese men and materials from moving. By March of 44, Chenault's spies were warning him that Japan was about to launch a major assault on East China again, which did begin in April, when a number of bases were seized and Kuilin, a major stronghold for nationalist China, fell to the Japanese. The Japanese believed that the 14th Air Group had been destroyed, and China was theirs. Stilwell was recalled to Washington. Behind the scenes, the Chinese people weren't done yet. Almost one million Chinese laborers began breaking rocks by hand and building airstrips out of the rock chips for Mitchell bombers and fighters. In December of 1944, 241 Japanese planes were destroyed and 40,000 tons of shipping was sunk. Railroads were battered, 37 locomotives being destroyed from the air in a single day. Chenault's tireless pilots spotted 159 Japanese ships for Allied submarines to attack. The 14th was definitely in business. A new pride had filled the 14th. A tiger designed by Disney had replaced the shark as the symbol for the planes. In January of 1945, 345 Japanese planes were shot down in one month. After that, the numbers dropped, and it took a few months before they realized that the Japanese Air Force over China had been virtually destroyed. In three years, Chenault's Air Force had accounted for 3,000 Japanese planes while losing 468 of their own, most pilots surviving thanks to Chinese ground crews. Under the worst of conditions, Chenault's tactics and leadership along with some of the most heroic pilots, mechanics, and support crews that ever comprised an air group, 
had set the highest victory records in history, records that will never be surpassed. When Chenault was promoted to Major General and flown back to China to begin a farewell tour which began in Chongqing, no one had to tell the Chinese people who he was. As he drove through the streets in Chiang Kai-shek's car, the crowd of adoring and grateful Chinese grew so large that the car couldn't move. So they turned off the engine while Chiang Kai-shek issued directions and the crowd moved the car toward their next destination. Everywhere Chenault went, he got the same reception. He was the man who saved China. In Peshei, Xi'an, Shegtu, Luniang, and Hunming, every Chinese, rich or poor, man and woman, wanted to see old Leatherface. He took the tour because it was necessary. His men were still fighting. The war was not yet over. But China would never forget what those men had done. There are several museum displays in the United States honoring the Flying Tigers, and you ought to check them out. The National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, has an extensive display dedicated to the AVG, including an A-2 jacket worn by an AVG pilot in China, a banner presented to the AAF by the Chinese government, and a P-40E. The National Museum of Naval Aviation in Pensacola, Florida, also has a Flying Tiger display. The Chenault Aviation Museum in Monroe, Louisiana has an extensive collection of flying tigers and AVG memorabilia. The AVG monument in the National Museum of the United States Air Force Memorial Garden features a marble sculpture of a pagoda crowned with a brass model of a P-40. The monument stands nearly 14 feet tall. The Palm Springs Air Museum has a display of memorabilia inside a mock-up of AVG ground facilities with a P-40N painted in AVG markings. And there's a memorial to the AVG and 14th Air Force located at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, depicting a P-40 in AVG markings with a bronze plaque describing the unit's history and Vandenberg's role as headquarters for the 14th Air Force. There are also several memorials to the AVG in Asia. In Chiang Mai, Thailand, a marble obelisk was dedicated on the 11th of November, 2003, inscribed to Chenault, to Jack Newkirk, who was killed in North Thailand on March 24, 1942, and to Charles Mott and William McGarry, who were shot down and captured in Thailand. In Taiwan, Madame Chiang Kai-shek requested a statue of Chenault in the new park of Taipei to commemorate their wartime friend after his death. The statue has since been located to Huilin Air Force Base. A Flying Tigers Memorial is located in the village of Zhejiang, Hunan Province, China, and there's a museum dedicated exclusively to the Flying Tigers. The building is a steel and marble structure with wide sweeping steps leading up to a platform with columns holding up the memorial sweeping roof. On its back wall, etched in black marble, are the names of all the members of the AVG, the 75th Fighter Squadron, and 14th Air Force, who died in China. In 2005, the city of Kunming held a ceremony memorializing the history of the Flying Tigers in China, and on December 20, 2012, the Flying Tigers Museum opened in Kunming. The date is the 71st anniversary of the first combat from Kunming of the Flying Tigers. China features a wall listing the names of Flying Tiger pilots and other pilots who defended China in World War II, and has several unmarked graves for such American pilots. The largest private museum in China, Chengdu 
Jianshuan Museum devotes a wing in its military section to the history of the Flying Tigers, including a tribute wall featuring a thousand porcelain photos of members of the Flying Tigers, as well as many historical artifacts from the era. In March 2015, the Flying Tiger Heritage Park was opened in Guilin in collaboration with the Flying Tiger Historical Organization. The park is built on the site of Yangtang Airfield and includes a museum, aircraft shelters, and relics of a command post located in a cave. The wreckage of a P-40 with CAF serial number P-8115 is on display in Chiang Mai, Thailand. That aircraft is believed to be that flown by William Mac McGarry when he was hit by anti-aircraft fire while flying top cover over Chiang Mai, March 24, 1942. It had crashed into the rainforest in northern Thailand. McGarry was captured and interrogated and spent most of the war in a Thai prison. Toward the end of the war, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, arranged for the Free Thai Movement to spirit him out of the prison to a PBY Catalina on the Gulf of Thailand. The wreck of his P-40 was discovered in 1991 and consists of the P-40's Allison engine, Hamilton standard propeller, and parts of the airframe. Today, the wreckage is displayed at the Tango Squadron Ring 41 Museum in Chiang Mai, Thailand. The wreck of another AVG P-40 is believed to be in Lake Dianchi, Lake Kunming. The fighter is believed to be a P-40E piloted by John Blackburn when it crashed into the lake on a gunnery training flight on April 28, 1942, killing Blackburn. His body was recovered from the aircraft, which was submerged in 20 feet of water. A number of feature films have referenced the AVG directly or indirectly, the most famous being Flying Tigers, a 1942 black-and-white film from Republic starring John Wayne and John Carroll as fighter pilots. Other wartime films with an AVG angle included The Sky's the Limit in 1943, Hers to Hold, with Joseph Cotton in 1943, and God is My Co-Pilot, with Dennis Morgan as Robert Lee Scott. And we highly recommend the book The Flying Tigers by John Toland, who spent years interviewing the veterans of the AVG and gave us a treasure for all time with that book. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Be sure to catch our other shows. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. All of them are found wherever great podcasts are found. If you enjoy our show, please take a moment and send us a review. And here are a few recent ones. This one, five stars. Taking me away from Audible. So many great stories, it's hard to get back to my Audible library. Great guy, great show. Great stories. Keep up the great work, John. Amazing. Your fan, Chip. That one from Rigged Spin Wheel, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, awesome. Siempre Interesante, five stars. That one from Tatiani, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, informative and incredible, interesting podcast. Love it. Five stars. Fantastic podcast. Informative, entertaining. Just an enjoyable experience, and the podcaster has a fantastic voice and makes learning so much fun. That one from Shane Lear, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Thankful Father, five stars. Believe it or not, my teenage daughters and I enjoy listening to these stories while making the two-hour drive to Grandma's Cozy Lake Cabin in Western Maryland. We enjoy discussing them afterwards and, and no doubt have bonded over these family-friendly stories. 
That from a Pittsburgh dad. New Ken fan, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, solid, five stars. Over time, I've developed a handful of go-to podcasts I enjoy listening to, and this one is a definite rock I keep coming back to again and again. An interesting and wide range of subjects will keep your interest peaked, and you may find it hard to stop listening. A big thanks to John for all his honest hard work and effort. And that from PR Man, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, 1001 Eros, five stars. Production and research, top-notch, interesting stories, and great narration. And that one from DXHZH, U.S. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. They are greatly appreciated. Our shows come out every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, sometimes a little earlier. I know a lot of you know by now. Uh, we release them at 7, but a lot of times it takes the hosts a, a while to pick them up. So I, to be safe, I always say 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday nights. Everybody stay safe, and we'll be back in one week. Thanks for listening.